This is your word. We pray that we may bow before you and thus listen to this word. I pray that you would teach us, that you would correct us, that you would train us in righteousness. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 2 Timothy in chapter 4, please. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read just verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Hear the word of God. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now we're back in Second Timothy. You might remember towards the end of the uh, fall, uh, we had taken up uh, during the fall semester uh, this particular epistle. We broke from that during the Advent season. Uh, in the wisdom of the church, it seems best for us um, to uh, consider during those Sundays of Advent, the four Sundays that, that uh, precede uh, Christmas, um, to consider the incarnation. We did that. I trust that during that time our faith was uh, strengthened. But I want now to come back uh, to Second Timothy and finish up this uh, letter before I move on to something else. So we'll take this week and perhaps next week as well. This passage I read is one of the most familiar, I trust, to us uh, from the scripture, mostly, or most especially from Paul's letters, especially this verse 7. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've, I've kept the faith. You know, in this, Paul's really about to die. You take that from his verse 6 where he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and my time of departure has come. We don't think he means simply his time of leaving Rome. He's a prisoner in Rome at this particular point in time. Uh, He's in chains. He's a criminal there. Um, It's a difficult time for him. We know that this is the last letter that Paul wrote. Uh, Tradition tells us that it wasn't too long afterwards that he was beheaded, that he was killed, martyred, if you will. And so these are the last sentences that we have from him. And he is reflecting even now upon his own death. Um, It's a difficult time for him. He's in this prison situation that obviously isn't uh, pleasant. He's chained. Um, He says that when he first made his defense, everyone deserted him. He was completely alone. This man, Demas, he says, has deserted him as well. Alexander the coppersmith has hurt him deeply, he says. There is a few who are with him, at least around him. From them, greetings are sent. It seems his only steady companion is his dear friend, the physician, uh, Luke. And Luke is with him. And so there he is, about to die. He's writing to Timothy, this holy epistle. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is his son in the faith. Timothy, pastor in Ephesus. Lots going on in Ephesus, a difficult place to pastor. He's inviting Timothy now to leave that place in Ephesus and come to Rome to visit Paul, even though doing so could put Timothy's life 
in danger, dangerous place for a Christian to be, especially a Christian leader to be in Rome at that point in time. Paul had already been arrested for his faith. And so, so, so he's inviting Timothy to come into this situation. But he's leaving some final instructions for Timothy and hence for us as well about how, ought to be, how a church ought to be a church and how a pastor ought to be a pastor. And so he's writing to Timothy about this, and he's trying to encourage him. Encourage him. Timothy is, is timid in his uh, personality. Um, uh, he may be reluctant to deal with the kinds of things necessary in Ephesus. And so Paul's writing to him to encourage him on in his ministry. This verse 5, that um, is right before what I read for our text this morning. Uh, Paul writes to him, he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, saying, Timothy, you're a young guy, I'm an old guy. You have your life ahead of you, if you will, I'm about to die. But I want to tell you that you need to persevere in the calling to which you've been called. No, we haven't, most of us, been called as an apostle or a pastor, but we've been called by God to belong to him as believers in Christ, the witness of him, and to work in the world, to do whatever it is that he's called us to do, whether that's being a plumber or a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or a mechanic or whatever it is that God has called you to do, mom, dad, and, and he, he's given us these vocations, these callings, and he says you need to persevere in that according to the faith, according to the gospel. You need to persevere in that. Don't, don't give up. That's essentially then the message as Paul thinks about where he presently is, looks at his past as he reflects, and then looks on to see what is to come. Notice this verse 6 as Paul reflects upon his, his present situation. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. What a fascinating way to say, I'm going to die. He speaks of his death as departure. A little word departure in the language in which Paul wrote was used in a variety of ways. It was used mostly to signify loosening something or releasing something. It would be used, for instance, as a word to describe uh, taking uh, the yoke off an animal, off an oxen, to unyoke, to loosen the burden. So Paul, in a sense, is here I'm going, this departure, and what it's going to be for me is a loosening of, of the work, and now I'm going to rest. And not only that, it was used uh, to describe chains being loosed from a prisoner. Don't you know Paul resonated with that? Here he was in chains in this prison, and he says, I'm about to be loosed of these chains. But not only those chains... But all the chains that, that bind us to this world, the, the trouble that we experience, the suffering that we experience, the sin and the temptation and all of that. He's saying, I'm about to be loosed, be freed from all of that. And not only that, it was a, a word that was used to describe loosening the ropes from a tent so you could take down the tent and go back home, if you will. And he's saying, in a sense, this was happening to me. The tent is of this body and this earth is, is being loosed and, and, and is being taken down. And now I'm going to a permanent dwelling place in my father's house. And then it was also used of a, of a boat that was tied to the dock and now being loosed. And, and thus the boat would set sail, it would depart. And he said, I'm, I'm setting sail for heaven. That sense of, of departure. 
Because he knew that the place that he was going was better, was gain, as he put it in Philippians chapter 1. That's where he would know more completely the victory that Christ had had over sin and death. He'd know it there in the, in the very reality, up front, close and personal, face to face. He'd see it, he'd, he'd really experience it. Experiencing it more deeply at that moment in time, his departure when he landed, if you will. He knew it gained for him. So he wasn't saying, pity me. He wasn't worrying. He wasn't afraid. He spoke of it as his departure. I don't know if it's your experience, but it's certainly mine. That at funerals, people almost always say about the one who's deceased, I'm so glad their suffering has ended, and I'm so glad they're in a better place. Now, we say that of a Christian, of course, that's true, that's right. But it's said at almost every funeral I've ever been to. And you want to say, how do you know that? Is that really true? And the apostle, you see, knows that it really only is true for those who have faith in Jesus. Death conquers those who have no faith in Christ, whose sins have not been forgiven. That's the sting of it. You see, the law comes and accuses and, 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 and proves the guilt. One isn't forgiven because of the death of Christ and faith in him. And you see, it isn't a better place. People ask me from time to time, well, what do you say at a funeral when you know the person isn't a believer? Well, of course, if I'm preaching such a funeral, I tell people about Jesus. I don't talk about the person. In fact, I don't talk about the person even if the person was a believer that much because Jesus is way more uh, important to talk about and more interesting uh, than us. But anyway, but you know, we say things to the family like, I feel sorry for you. I for your loss, for those who love the person. We certainly say that. And we think of nice things to say about the person who's deceased. Uh, we, we do that. We don't run in and say, well, this person's condemned. We say those things, but, but, but we don't say, oh, I know he, she is in a better place. If we don't have that sense of assurance that he or she was a believer, was a believer in Christ. So Paul, you see, at the end of his days is reflecting upon upon his death, and for him, it's a departure. For a Christian, it's a departure. It's a setting free, a setting, a releasing, so that the, the work is done, the rest has come. So that the chains are off, so freedom really is, 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 is there, experienced. See? It's, it's the boat released, it's a setting sail for heaven, it's a tent down and now in a permanent dwelling place. All that, true. And he says, so, so the time of my departure has come. I, in fact, even now I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And as Paul shares that, he says something not only about his death, but also about his life. Because you see, when he refers to a drink offering, everyone would know that, that he's referring to an Old Testament sacrifice, that Old Testament sacrifice of the burnt offering. 
Now, the burnt offering was the offering made for sin, an atonement for sin. And, and the burnt offering would take place like this. You would take an animal of various kinds of animals could be used. They're all listed in, in the scripture about which one you can use and for what and all of that. An animal taken and killed and, and it would be taken. And for this burnt offering, this atoning sacrifice, it would be laid on the altar and almost all of it would be burned up. Nothing would be left behind. Nothing would be eaten by the people. It would all be just, just taken to, to show that, that, that this is the wages of sin, the destruction if you will, of, of life, the taking of life. Uh, but as it would be on the altar burning, they would take some flour and some oil and mix it together and spread it on the top. And then on top of that, they would take wine and they would pour it out on the sacrifice. And they would pour the wine on the sacrifice, the scripture says, so it would smell good. So it would be a sweet smell, if you will, to the Lord. And Paul said, that's what's happening to me right now. My whole life, has been given. My whole life has been a sacrifice. I've given my life. And now I'm at the very end of it. So the way I describe that is that now this wine, this drink offering is being poured out on the sacrifice. Now, Paul knew that his sacrifice wasn't atoning. He didn't die for anybody's sins. Wasn't going to die. He didn't give his life for anybody's sins. In a sense, even his own. It's not that his suffering was atoning, thus a sacrifice. It wasn't that he did penance so that, that he paid something and that was sacrificial and all of that. No, it wasn't that at all. He, he understood his life to be a sacrifice in the sense in which he wrote it in Romans in chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul puts it like this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, real worship that comes from the Holy Spirit. A life that shows the very worth of God. Real worship is a life that's a living sacrifice that is, that's completely yielded to God. So that God would take this life that's been consecrated to him and use it in a way that would bring glory to him. And he said, that's the conscious life that we live. That's our spiritual worship. Other translations has it as our reasonable worship. That is, if you really know God and you really know who you are, and you really know what Christ has done, then this is reasonable. It's reasonable to yield to him. It's reasonable to say, not my will, but your will be done. And so Paul in his life says, I've given my life so that... You might be blessed. The way that I've loved you is the sacrifice to give. And it, it was a difficult life in, in many ways, this sacrifice. For instance, in Second Corinthians and uh, chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 11, Paul writes of, of his life. Now you, you need to realize that while you and I think Paul is pretty terrific, the people of his day didn't always think that highly of him that there were times when he had to defend his apostleship. And when he wrote to the church in Corinth, his second letter, much of it is a defense of his apostleship. Because you see, there were some really cool guys who were apostles, you see? They had their own TV shows and all of that, you know? They looked great, they said wonderful things. Nothing bad ever happened to them. You know, they had 3.2 children and they all turned out perfect. Everything was just great about them, you see? And here was Paul, this hunched over guy that looked like he'd been beaten a lot. Because he had been beaten a lot. And he had been in prison. 
And you know how embarrassing that is when your pastor's in prison, you know? And, and, and so they like these other people better. And so Paul would have to write to them. And he says, here's my credentials as an apostle. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He's writing um, sarcastically here. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? Meaning these glossy apostles. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. The less one was so you wouldn't die. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In other words, Paul said, if you could think of a person, I was in danger from them. If you can think of a place, I was in danger there. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure... And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In other words, Paul's saying, it's all of that, plus I have you people to deal with, you see. Paul, not me. None of those other things have happened to me. Or that. But it was a difficult, difficult thing for him, you see. Difficult thing for him. His sacrifice, the way he put it to the church in Colossae was... My sufferings are making up for the afflictions of, that were lacking in Christ. And by that, he didn't mean that there was anything lacking in Christ to die for our sins. But he says, in order for this word to go out, I've had to give my life. I've had to sacrifice. I've had to say no to all these things. Say yes to Christ. He said, I've been poured out like a, like a drink offering, sacrifice. And he says, listen, if you really want to live out this faith, that's what it is. Living out this faith is a life that's, that, that lives the course charted by the faith that is in glory to God. So it's a life that's lived out, yielded to him. And so we give our bodies, as he said, as a living, as a living sacrifice. He puts it like this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. Do not present your members, that is the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He says, yield to God in everything. As you're calling as a parent, yield to God. Walk out the faith as a parent. As a banker, yield to God. Walk out the faith in your, in your vocation as a teacher, as a mechanic, in friendships, in the context of your life in the church. Live this out according to this faith, the faith. Yield yourself. Sacrifice of, of love, really. Realize to love you must die. We all get 
goosebumps when we speak about love. <laughs> but real love means sacrifice. Real love, love means, at times at least, saying no to oneself so that you can say yes to another. It means taking from what you have so that another will have it and you will not. You see, it's, it's a dying to our own pride to dying to our own self, to sacrifice. Paul says, that's the life to which I was called. Now presently you realize that I'm at the very end of that. And here's how I reflect upon the life that I've lived. I don't know if you have opportunity or have had opportunity in your life, but you will in various situations. Various times in your life, you will have opportunity to be with someone who is dying and who knows they're dying. Let me encourage you to listen to them. You may think you know them well, but when you listen to them in their last days, you'll know them weller. You'll know them better. Don't miss those opportunities. Listen. Paul was dying. We have the advantage that he wrote his thoughts. And so as he writes them, we need to listen to them. This is how he reflected upon his life. Didn't take him much, just a sentence, few phrases. But he says, here's the course of my life all summed up. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now, fighting the fight, running the race, are inexorably tied to the faith. In 1 Timothy in chapter 6, Paul writes to Timothy this, fight the good fight of the faith. In other words, the fighting is, is so that we can maintain this faith to keep it. You remember that Paul was writing to Timothy and thus to the church in Ephesus and thus to us. And he said, listen, church, You've been given this deposit, this gospel. It's called the faith. Guard it. Keep it. Don't compromise it. Uh, don't dilute it in any way. Keep it. it you, you're the steward of this gospel. And so Paul knew that as an apostle, he was such a steward as well. Timothy would know as a pastor, he was such a steward as well. The people in the church in Ephesus would know as Christians, they were stewards as well. You see, we, we, we keep this gospel for us and the next generation. Can you imagine what would happen if this generation, the generation in which we live, if this generation compromises and dilutes the gospel? We're the ones with whom it's been deposited. And Paul says, I'll fight for that. Paul says, I'm going to run the course laid out by that faith. I'm going to live my life according to it. You see, you see that's ours, you see. So Paul says in reflection upon his life, I've, I've fought for it. Not only fought for the faith, but even in my own life, I, I've maintained it. I've, I've fought so that I could maintain faith, continue to believe in the midst of all the struggles, in the midst of all the enemies, in the midst of all the obstacles. I've continued on this course laid out by by this faith, by this gospel, I, I've lived it. I've kept it, you see. That's what's important. That's the good fight. It's good, you see, to keep this faith. 
If we win that fight, we've won everything. If we lose that fight, we've lost it all. So he says, I've kept it. Now, Paul knew that he wasn't perfect. With his statement, he wasn't saying, if you took a microscope to, 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 to every, every nook and cranny of my life, uh, uh, you wouldn't find perfection. I'm a sinner saved by grace. He knew that. In fact, you, you read through his letters, you, you, you find his own struggle with sin. Romans chapter 7, for instance, he, he struggles with sin. Uh, we see it in the, his writings to the church in Corinth about his own pride, for instance. We see it as he writes to the church in Philippi, and he tells them he had to learn to be content in every situation, which means he experienced various discontentments in the course of his life. So we know that about him. But, but his point is, I've persevered. And what he's saying to Timothy, what he's saying to us, is that this life, this Christian life, is a life that we're called, in which we must persevere. Jesus said, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Jesus spent time saying, listen, if you're going to put your hand to the plow, keep it there. Don't look back. He would say, listen, if you're going to come to follow me, you've got to count the cost. Because I'm not just asking for a vote here. I'm just not asking for a friend here. I'm asking you to come and sacrifice. I'm asking you to come and follow me. I'm asking you to come and deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow me. I want you to put to death all that isn't of me. That's what it means to come after me. And so Paul's saying to Timothy, don't give up, never give up. And you know, Timothy was a timid fellow. We don't get a great sense as we read about him through these letters that he was of great courage and this huge moral stalwart of a guy. You got the feeling that he would quit if he could. Somebody once asked me, they said, do you ever think about quitting the ministry? I said, oh, I'm down to twice a week. thought about quitting, you see. And there were great issues. And you read about the church in Ephesus, tremendous issues there. And Paul, being the honest apostle that he was, said to Timothy, it's only going to get worse. A day will come when they won't listen to you at all. And they won't want to listen to others who aren't preaching, teaching this true gospel. And so, Sister Timothy, you, you've got to persevere. You've got to keep on. And, and I've done it. And, you know, Paul's testimony was that this was a good fight. That it was a great fight. It was, it was a fight worth fighting. Nothing else would be worth fighting that fight. In Philippians in chapter 3, Paul describes his life uh, like this. Verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, listen, all this stuff I've lost wasn't worth having compared to having Christ. It's a good fight. There are obstacles, there are struggles. Satan comes against us. Our own sinful inclinations come against us, trying to dilute this faith all the time in us. Because not to believe it, to not to live it, you know the struggle of that. 
Paul did. I fought it. And even those who came against me, I fought. And Paul knew the strength that he had. He knew that the strength that he had to fight it was from God. And so even as he's saying to these words, you can you get a sense, I do, that, that, that Timothy's translating this. I fought the good fight. Oh, yes, that's right. God enabled me to fight a good fight. I, I, I ran the race. I finished the race. Oh, yes, God enabled me to finish the race. I've kept the faith. Oh, yes, God enabled me to finish and to keep, to keep the faith. And in fact, as Paul writes this sentence, doesn't show up in English, but in the language in which he wrote it, it shows up that his emphasis is not on himself. In fact, a more literal translation would go something like this. The good fight I've fought. The race I've finished. The faith I've kept. See, it isn't about Paul. We're we're not here to, 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 to glory in him, but to realize, yes, there is a good fight to fight. There's a race to be run. There's a faith to be kept. That's the point here, you see. So he says, I, I fought the good fight. So I finished the course. I finished the race. You see, this faith gives us a course of life to live. Notice how Jesus describes this life. Matthew chapter 7. And what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This, this race to be run. This course which is laid out. Verse 13 Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus is saying, listen, because of the sinfulness of our condition, we all find it easy, natural, to sort of live according to our own wisdom and our own passions. We find that easy. When we're able to do that, it seems like life is gliding right along. And you need to understand that, figuratively speaking, that way feels broad, it feels airy, it feels comfortable, it feels like there's plenty of space and plenty of us and and all of that. He says, but listen, if you want to come and follow me, it narrows. Because you see, everything I'm calling to you is contrary to this natural sinful nature that you have I'm calling you to put it to death and you'll struggle with that the things to which I call you will go contrary you see I'm going to ask you command you call you to forgive people who've hurt you and have no business being forgiven I'm going to call you to help people that don't deserve your help. I'm going to call you to be merciful to people who don't deserve mercy. I'm going to call you to live like that. I'm going to call you to love in such a way that will require sacrifice and you'll feel as if it's a death. That's hard, you see. Now, of course, we know his other promise. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm gentle and humble of heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, how can he say both those things? Well, on the one hand, he's saying, listen, it is hard. But on the other hand, if I'm with you, I'll help you. Depend, trust on me. That's the course, you see. That's the way. It's the way not of self-dependence, but of dependence upon Christ. It's not the, the, the way of self-righteousness. It's, it's dependence on the righteousness of Christ, you see. 
He says, I'll come to you in the midst of this and I'll help you. Oh, you'll sweat. You'll be tired. Oh, you'll sacrifice. You'll feel it. But it will be me. Paul has this great expression as he writes to the church in in Colossae. He says that I labored, I toiled with all his energy, which so powerfully works within me. That was Paul's description of his life. He says, I labored, meaning I felt it. I was tired at the end of the day. My bones were weary. My muscles ached. All of that, I got it. I I was weary. I I could see the wrinkles form in my forehead from from concern and all of that. Uh, But I have to tell you that that all that I did in that toiling and working, I did by his energy uh, that, that so powerfully worked within me. I would have been dead in the water without that. He sustained me in the midst of that. And that's, you see, what we experience. He says, I want you to know, I want you to understand what I'm calling you to, count the cost. If you're going to put your hand to the plow, put it there. And don't turn back. There's a course that's laid out. And you see, we can get off this course so easily. The author of Hebrews speaks to us about this. You see, the, the book of Hebrews was written to people who were meandering along the course they, they were, uh, in, in sort of common parlance, they were, they were backsliding, if you will. They, they weren't getting on with it. And so he writes to them to encourage them on. And so he begins his chapter 12 like this. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. In other words, on this, rate, weight, on this race, you see, there's, there, there's, there's weights upon us. Other translations, there's encumbrances upon us. And then there's also sins. It's likely since he uses two words, he has two different things in mind. We know the sin that clings us, and that keeps us off course all the time. We know that. That's why we have in our worship services that time of confession. A time of confession is that time when we acknowledge that sin so we can get back on course, if you will. If you don't acknowledge that sin... You rationalize it. You ignore it. You just keep getting off course. So we need these corrections all the time. This acknowledgement of our sin. But these weights that so easily entangle us, if you will, may not be sin per se, but just distractions. Things that get in our way. There's all kinds of things in our day that get in our way. It's hard for me to reflect on previous generations. It just seems, though, that their life must have been simple. I know they had to think about eating a lot more than we do. And the cold and all that. We seem to have those things taken care of. But there's so many distractions. You can spend hours playing with your phone. Right? Don't you wonder what we used to do? Before apps? You see? We, We don't even use the apps. We just collect them. Right? I got an app for that. I don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, I have an app for sanctification. I'm looking for one. I'm, I'm just, you know, I just have it on my phone now. I'm fine. You know, I just hit this button and I'm holy. Uh, right? And TV and, 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 and travel and all the things at our fingertips and available to us. Good things. Sports. After a while, you realize... I haven't prayed in weeks, really. Not really prayed. I haven't read my Bible in a while. I missed the last oh, year and a half's worth of Bible studies because I've been busy. You see? 
And we worry about other people's lives. Remember the great scene in, in, in the Apostle Peter's life at the end of uh, John's Gospel uh, after Jesus restores Peter from his denying him. You know, uh, he, Peter looks over at John and says, well, what about him? You know, uh, and Jesus said, don't worry about him. I'll worry about him. You get on with it. We spend a great deal of time worrying about things that don't concern us. Engaged in things we shouldn't be engaged in. And Jesus says, leave them alone. I'll take care of them. You just get on with it. These things which get us off course. He said, don't, don't get off course, Timothy. Don't get off course, Bill. Don't get off course, church. He said, finish it. Finish it. And he said, you see, I've... I've kept the faith. And here's, here's the end result of all of that. He says, the end result of all of that, of this life that I've lived by faith in Christ, is that there is, henceforth, verse 8, a crown of righteousness laid up for me. Laid up meaning it's there, it's secure, it's safe, it's been there. I have my name on it. This crown of righteousness is really a wreath of righteousness. He's using this athletic metaphor as opposed to a sort of royal metaphor. But this idea of this wreath at the end of the, the race, at the end of the wrestling match, the fight, the, the winner gets a wreath. And he says, I'm going to get one of those. And it's going to be, it's going to be righteousness. And the righteous judge will reward that to me on that day. But not, also, not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing, meaning the appearing of Jesus. So Paul says this, look. The end of this life, there's righteousness. This right standing with God, not only that. This declaration that you're justified in sight, not only that. But there's this absence of sin. All is righteous. Even you, believer in Christ, as you stand before him. He says, that's the gift at the end of the day. Oh, he knew he didn't merit it. He knew it was from grace. But he says, it's for me and for those who love his appearing. What did he mean by that? We didn't say just those who believe in the appearing of Jesus, but those who love it. It's their desire to see Jesus and to see Jesus because they'll receive at that point in time what seeing Jesus brings to us. Notice, Apostle John writes about it in First John in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is because it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He says, listen, we desire his coming because we know that the very problem of our lives is sin and unrighteousness. But when he appears, you see, we'll be like him. Not that we'll be deity, not that we'll be God, but that we'll be righteous. We'll be like him. And he said, now, that should be the love of your soul. See, I, I often reflect upon the second coming of Jesus. And I get really excited about it, mostly because it means it'll get me out of next week. Right? 
or I think it'll just be fun. It'll just be nice. It'll just be easy. I'll be sitting in a comfortable place at the beach and probably somebody else will be jogging for me, you know, and I'll just be sitting there with my little, you know, all of my stuff. It'd be wonderful. But he says, no, 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 that, that isn't it. You should love his coming because then everything will be righteous, will reflect him, will be right with him. That should be the love of your soul. You know, if you can find out what a person loves, then you know them. And when I think of this, do I love his appearing so that everything will reflect him, so that I will be righteous? You see, that, that, that's the problem of human beings, isn't it? It's just unrighteousness. As Jesus laid out the Sermon on the Mount. He began with that. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, he says, you'll be blessed when you get it, when you finally understand that you're a sinner without hope, that you have nothing to contribute to your salvation at all, nothing to contribute so that God would accept you. You're poor in spirit. And then he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, meaning you're really upset about your sin and your unrighteousness. And he says, blessed are the meek then after that, meaning that should humble you, that should send you to your knees, that should send you to God in utter dependence upon him. Blessed are the meek, the humble. But then after that he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why that order? Well, because of this. Because you see, he begins by saying, you haven't got righteousness. You realize that that's the problem, that you've offended God because of your lack of righteousness. And because of that problem, it sends you to your knees mourning. You're sorry about that. The one thing you realize is that I need to be righteous before him and I'm not have offended him. And the one thing I need, therefore, is righteousness. And that sends you to your knees in mourning. It sends you in humility before him, not boasting of yourself, but coming to him. And he says, oh, yes, that's the person who then wants me to come because that's the person who's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And you know the end of that. And he will be satisfied. Satisfied with what? Righteousness. There isn't anything else that satisfies. Oh, we know that's something now. We know that we've been declared righteous because of the work of Christ. We know that his righteousness is given to us and we live in that. And that's, that's our glory in this day. But, but Paul said, listen, there's something with his righteousness that, that even exceeds that. Because a day will come when sin will be gone. And you will be righteous. And all will be righteous in the sight of God. See, that, 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 that's the thing, you see. That'll get you to run the race. That'll get you to fight the fight. <laughs> and that'll get you to keep the faith. Because it's only that faith that enables us to receive the righteousness of Christ. It's only that faith that enables us to enter into that crown of righteousness. So that's that word to us. Fight the good fight. Finish the course. Keep the faith. Of course, 
We know of this from that night in which Jesus was betrayed. We know there it was when Jesus took bread after giving thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same manner, the scripture says that he took the cup and again after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. What do we remember? What do we think about when we come to this table? Many things. Today, this. That yes, his death took the penalty for our sin that we might be forgiven. And his life is our righteousness. That everywhere we've sinned, he's obeyed. And he gives that to us. So now even we stand righteous before him. And he said, now I've, I've laid out this life, this faith. And it isn't a faith where you, where, you, where you beat on your chest and boast in yourself and say, I can do this. No, 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 that's not it at all. It's this faith that says, I can't. That I yield to him. I submit to him. I trust in him. And he then gives to us his righteousness. He says, I want you to live that out. There'll be enemies that come against you trying to make you think you're all that and you've done it and and you really are good enough and you really have earned it. And don't listen to any of them. There'll be times when you'll want to get off this and explore ways according to your own wisdom and your own passions. Don't do that. Fight to maintain this faith. Stay on that course, you see. The course laid out by that faith. Keep it. And here's it, you see. You'll be in right standing with God. And the day will come when in his sight and all around will be righteousness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that we'd believe that. Would you give us grace to fight and to run, to keep? That our anticipation would be that a day would come when this righteousness would be known to us in all of its fullness. Father, even now as we come to this table, I pray that you'd set apart this bread and this juice in such a way It will enable us to know we live even now in the very presence of Jesus. He is our sacrifice for our sin. He is our righteousness. It's faith in him. It's a race laid out by him and for him. That we may know that day of his return and sin being gone. Meet us here at this table, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. That is, we know our unrighteousness And we know the holiness of God. And we have no hope unless he's merciful towards us. And we believe, we trust that his mercy 
is granted to us through Jesus. And thus we receive, believe, and depend upon Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And it's our heart's desire to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith. So a day will come when we'll know righteousness in all of its fullness. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, let go off on your head. I'm to fight the good fight. I'm to finish the race. I'm to keep the faith. And by God's grace, I will. Please come.